Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi. Before the show starts, I'll tell you about a super exclusive deal to you from our new sponsor, Uber. Uber is an app-based ride-sharing service that at the tap of a button connects you with a driver in Stockholm, Gothenburg and over 250 other cities around the globe. I just came home from Los Angeles and it works like a charm both here and there. It's stylish, safe and cheaper than regular taxi. With the promo code VARVET you will get your first trip free up to 150 Swedish kronor. If you want to support Varvet International, take a trip with Uber and download the Uber app now. It's available in any app store and enter the code VARVET. The code is VARVET and the app is called Uber. Okay, thanks in advance and thank you, Uber. I didn't come with a lot of money. I came with $300 to this country and a vision. Welcome to the 18th episode of Varvet International with me, Christopher Triumf. I woke up this morning here in West Hollywood. The sun shines. It's a beautiful day and I'm so happy that you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, I love you for that. Thank you. Now, this week's guest is Marcus Samuelson. He has cooked for President Obama at the White House. He was the youngest chef ever to get a three-star review in the New York Times. And he serves dignitaries, celebrities such as Bill Clinton and said president and other fine diners every night at his successful Harlem restaurant Red Rooster. Top Chef Marcus Samuelson may be exactly what you call the American dream, but this, by the way, of Ethiopia and Sweden. Samuelson was born in Ethiopia and adopted to a family in Sweden at the age of three, and he grew up in the west coast of Sweden, enchanted by his grandmother's Swedish cooking. In his adolescence, he was being taught to master the art of food making at some of the most prestigious uh, restaurants and hotels in Europe. And he ended up at Aquavit, a Swedish restaurant in the middle of Manhattan. Since then, he's won the US TV program Top Chef Masters and his stardom has just exploded. He's a superstar here. And his road to celebrity hasn't been, it hasn't been easy, but he has been ambitious, honest, and he has been able to cook really good food. Now, Marcus is a really, really busy guy, but we managed to get one of his hours, and we sat down in Harlem at his restaurant, Red Rooster, a few months back, and I really enjoyed this talk, so let's just roll the tape, shall we? Thanks for having us. Thank you. Right now in the... The basement, the downstairs, the Jenny Supper Club. 
Yeah, I was thinking because uh, I would like to make a sound check and I would like you to, while we do that, just if you could describe the setting for us. Well, right now you're in New York, you're in northern Manhattan, you're in Harlem, where I live and where we have Red Rooster. And uh, in Red Rooster is really divided into, uh, well, it's one home right north of 125th Street, but it's really two special places in one. It's Ginny's Supper Club, where we pay homage to the great jazz and musicians and storytellers and actors and writers that is of Harlem and been inspired by Harlem. And upstairs is a restaurant, Red Roosters. So. It's a fantastic place. Well, we've been blessed with, um, you know, first of all, where we are, the place, Harlem itself. It's, it's pretty magical in terms of its sense of history and culture, but also we're discovering, you know, in this journey that people have a thirst for Harlem, where it came from, where it is today and where it's going. So in a, in, a, in a world where we're constantly overexposed with stuff, a place like, it's pretty fascinating to think about a place like in New York can be still underexposed. But it's slowly getting more and more attention or? Well, I mean, you know, creativity is the core of, of that, right? Like creativity is one of these things that, you know, it was all over Manhattan, Soho, Tribeca, but then when things get too expensive, a lot of creative kids moved to Brooklyn, and then other people started to say, well, what else is there? There's places like Harlem. And out of that, when you start undiscovering, unpeeling that, you realize like Harlem has incredible bones and frames, you know, from we stand on the shoulder of people from the Great Migration coming from the south, uh, coming north, but then also what did they bring with them? Culture, food, history, music, art, and that's, you know, out of that comes Apollo, out of that comes the supper clubs, the museums, the artists, the writers. So I think creativity will always evolve, and places where creativity comes from will, will, will never really be new places, because that would be saying, like, for the creative people that are there before. It's like if we would have the same boom in the Bronx, people say, oh, something is happening, you know, Bronx is really happening. Well, out of the Bronx came hip-hop and graffiti, so Bronx has been happening for a very, very long time, you know. How long have you been living in, in uh, Harlem? I lived for about 10 years in Harlem, and I lived in the States for 15 years. So, you know, Harlem has always been on my mind and always been in a very special place to me. Even when I lived on the west side or I lived, you know, like everyone in New York has done the traditional five roommates, got kicked out. But I enjoyed that time too, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's part of coming to New York, right? or any urban major city, you, you, and you create great bonds and friends from that time. And then eventually you start, maybe you go through three different, three to four different places before you find the place, right, in, in a city like New York or London or Stockholm or something like that. And, uh, you know, I started on the Lower East Side, which I think is magical too. And then I lived in Hell's Kitchen, which has its beauty. It's a fantastic place as well. And then eventually I find myself here in Harlem. But it takes a while and, you know, it's like what do you, what speaks to you and, and, and this, you know, the mix between the low buildings and uh, the parks and the people and the brownstones, it, sp- it speaks to me. 
Of course, this is your home, but would you say that this place defines you the most? For now, for my, you know, as an adult, yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've been blessed with, I, but I actually think all most people are blessed with, they, they come from a place, right, which is very important to them, but then they very often move to another place or maybe go to school in another place, and then they are adults maybe in a third place. And those three things can actually be in the same city sometimes but they're very different tones and nuances in that city or in the same country or in the same continent, you know what I mean? So, so it doesn't have to be as, for me, where you have sort of these defined by Africa, Sweden, and New York and Harlem. I have these three sort of boxes that are very clear to me, a window's in. So for other people, that might not be that clear. But, you know, I remember my parents, you know, one comes from the, Both come from the west coast of Sweden, one from Helsingborg and one from, from Smegen. And they're both, they're both essentially cities surrounded by water. But my mom comes 20 minutes from the inland, so she doesn't relate to fishing culture. 20 minutes away from the water. So she's a meat eater. And my father was raised on the water. And these tiny little things clearly define how how they how we ate it's funny that you uh, I, you're very kind to smurgen when you call it a city mm. yes it, well it's a magical place by itself i mean especially where we're from a tiny little place but but smurgen is fantastic yeah. when it's find its core when it when it doesn't when the fishing culture is in the center in the heart of it yes because yeah. it's over flocked with tourists yeah. in the summer Yeah, can you even stand it? In that yeah, time? well, I mean, it has its place, right? Because as a, as a, as an adult, it's also where I spent all my summers as a kid. So that's how we got summer jobs. So you you sort of re you, you know the necessity of it, but it's very short. And you know, I'm a huge soccer fan, but you know, when the ratio of Slatan t-shirts are more than selling fish then there's something something have happened in the culture and I'm a huge Slatan fan but you know when you walk when, when you go down to the village and I still want to I'm, I'm, I, I love just watching when the fisherman comes in with the shellfish and the seafood because that's essentially the core you know smelling for me has a smell yeah it has and it has salt in the air and it has sounds you know and if you're there in mid-July you might think that that smell is beer Which is a good smell too, <laughs> but it's really the smell of salt. It's super special to be there in the mm -hmm. summer because, like, the boats they lay along the uh, quay, mm -hmm. and, there, and then there's like four or five or six or seven mm -hmm. boats outside of that one. Mm -hmm. So it's jam packed. Yeah, uh, it is. Really. Yeah. What's your first memory of food? Well, I would say, I mean, the relationship to nature is something that was really defined by my grandparents, both on my mom's and my dad's side in Sweden. And, and my mom's side, it was, we went berry picking. So eating sour lingon tart lingonberries, eating blueberries, unripe blueberries, because as a, as a kid, you don't really know when it's the season to eat them. So I remember that and remember the, the mess. And, but then... If they're green, yeah, don't eat them. Yeah, but I, I, we knew that much, but, but because my sisters are older than me, were always with us, but... but Then also, I think, like, fish, mackerel, mackerel, because that was summertime for us, mackerel. And it wasn't, the question wasn't really, are we eating mackerel today? It was like, what time? Is it, what type? Are we going to smoke it? 
is it going to be? It was really, are we going to have herring or are we going to have a mackerel? And then maybe one day we had meatball summertime. But it was a fish-based diet, and I loved that. So that's your first memory? Yeah, I would say so. I would just like to address the Sorry. fact. Could you tell us what's happening yeah. on the so other side of the so this here? is this is a very important part of the, you know, the restaurant is, restaurant. this restaurant is a 24-hour operation. It doesn't mean we're open 24-hour, but there's something happening 24-hour. So at night... The cleaning crew comes in, and we're shifting now. So the cleaning crew is leaving, but they're eating breakfast, which is essentially their dinner almost, right? So, and this is also when the staff meetings are starting. We're starting the day. You know, a restaurant has, I don't know any other workplace that has clear about two different, with the blue collar, with the trade, with the craftsmen, and then you switch over to action and lights, and the show is happening, right? But both sides are equally important. You, as a guest, might only relate to it from one side, but this part of the day is crucial for a functioning restaurant, crucial part. People are talking, we're fixing the restaurant, we're we're cleaning it up, we're draining the restaurant from a lot of different things and, and, and just getting ready for lunch, and then in the afternoon, almost the same thing is happening, new crew comes in, and then dinner, and then it's really action and life. But the the staff here they they love your restaurant, or? Well, I mean it's it, it's a labor it's a place of labor and it's a workplace. But if you just come here for a paycheck, you can't work here. You have to you have to be committed to the larger vision, which is we work in a place and of a place here in Harlem. Man, and it's hard when you have 150 staff just here to have everybody on the same page. So, I would be the first one to say we, you know, it's hard to have 150 people on the same page. So. I would say we probably have 80% of the staff that understand the, the, the mission. But we work every day to have everybody on the same page because it's a choice. And it's not, it's not like we have a choice and they have a choice. They're highly educated, highly smart, intelligent people that choose to spend this time, the 10 hours of their, work, of their day or whatever it is, or the 8 hour, the 4 hour, depending on how you work, with each other. It's a choice. How are you with uh, what we in Sweden call personalvård? I, I'm not sure about the term in English. Well, I mean, how we how we relate to staff. I mean, I think it's it's very it's very hard to compare staffing in Sweden and, and, and America. I think it's just two different. I mean, Sweden would be like a state in America, right? So you have different starting points. You know, diversity here. It's not a poster in the back office next to the bathroom. You know. It's reality from staff, from your customer, from everything. That means also diversity of spirituality and diversity of languages and diversity of how one is working and and education level. You know, in Sweden, we have diversity too, but the percentage-wise is probably different from both from customer point of view and staff and management point of view. And I say that because not one is better than the other, but I'm just saying it's so hard to compare the two because these, that sort of sets the framework. We want the same, the core end we want the same. We want to give our guest an incredible memory in terms of hospitality. So the, the end mission and the statement how to, is the same, but how to get there, how the song and dance, how to get there, 
are, are very, very different. You do have operations in, on both mm-hmm. continents. In what way would you say that you are a different uh, kind of boss in the different places? Uh, very, 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 very. I mean, I would say one of the advantages in Scandinavia and Sweden is that people are very highly, uh, very well educated. There's a base education level that's very high. Most of our staff in Sweden has been on both sides. They've both been, they've been guests a lot. They've traveled a lot. They speak great English so they, or other languages so they can really understand the guest situation well. And it's, I would say the foundation of that is, is really a middle class that has been exposed, not only to America, but to other places. That's a huge advantage, huge advantage. That I think is an advantage that Scandinavia and Sweden, especially is a head-on, then I c- you can also say that it's hard, it can be harder sometimes to motivate Swedish staff because they, they like you know, Ameri- American staff, come from different backgrounds. So the, a lot of my staff's goal is to become middle class. So this is a different starting point. And that changes everything when you say your choices of, hey, someone is sick, can you come in? Sure, I'll be there in five minutes. Actually, I live around the corner because I'm, I, I want to pick up that shift. So it's, it's, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just two different realities. You were born in Ethiopia, 1970. Mm-hmm. What do you remember from Ethiopia? Well, what I remember from Ethiopia today is, is, is mostly the memories. is a mix between sort of this dreamish thing about what the country was, but also the memories that my sister told me or I've been told by, by my other sisters and brothers, by my father that, that I met as an adult. So it's, a, it's a really a mosaic memory vision that it's not always based in how it was. It's more based in this collage of memories that's been given to me and passed down to me yeah. from others. And, um, you know, I've been back to Ethiopia so many times, so I know the village, I know the hut where we're from, and I know how far it is from the capital, and I know how, you know, also because I've been exposed to a lot of Ethiopians, both in Ethiopia, but also here in New York and in Washington, D.C. So it is a a mosaic, and I learned a lot from my wife, you know, that was raised there. So it's not a childhood that... Maybe that most people's childhood, but everyone, every single person that you meet has a story that is a little bit different than the other person. So, and I learned that. I, mean, I learned not to see somebody and, and guess who and what they are, what's the core, because mm-hmm. you're always wrong when you do that. Yeah. I was curious about, because you're, uh, you are a celebrity, so you must have done like thousands of interviews by this time. I mean, at least from Sweden, you're, we're curious about your background. Has that in any way like, affected your memories that you sort of have to tell the stories over and over? Not really. I mean, I, mean, I think by writing Yes Chef or We Chef, that is called in Sweden, by writing Yes Chef and the process of writing Yes Chef was really a 10-year process that I was like, so many people approached me and was like, oh, you were adopted through through a Swedish family, and how was that growing up in Sweden as a black kid and all stuff. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put it down, paper. Not out of frustration, because you realize that you have something to share. That was normal to me, that 
my parents were white and my sisters and I were black or mixed and my cousins were Koreans and, and my other cousins were Canadians, you realize later on that that is may might not be normal. Whatever is normal, what I mean, that's just never been... I've never really been inspired by that. You know, I've been inspired by other things, abnormal, by Prince and by Miles Davis and by things that are what I consider very clearly abnormal. And those are things that inspires me. So, but I do realize that it's something to share and I understand that and come to understand that. And so I think that by writing the book and the journey of the book, you know, it was the best way for me to put down this experience. And if that can inspire other people, if that can be a starting point of a conversation in the dialogue of race or in the dialogue of adoption or in the dialogue of identity or in the dialogue of family, of new family, great. That's it. I mean, that's what I provide content, right? Whether it's cooking, whether it's restaurants, whether it's books, I provide content. That's why I'm the world, in the world of content. I, I provide it in a very s- small local way and then it can be projected to globally, if that's the appreciation of that's the need or want. You've talked about the time that your parents picked you up at the airport. Yeah. What do you remember from this? Well, I mean, it, it's, again, it's a mix of my oldest sister, Anna, is really the one that she explained for me specifically, or my mom speci- specifically talked about that mo because I slept. I was just like, you know, a little child, but... You were you six. Know, well, no, I was actually three. Oh, sorry. Two and a half, three. So, so it was more the fact that the mood that my parents were in, nervous, energy, let's go home right away. So this is something that we talked about a lot, and mm. I get it. It's a big happening that went from, actually that went from, in a week, from being on a funeral for my father's mother to getting to Stockholm and adding to their family two more kids, you know. So that was, I can understand the, the emotions that, when, that were happening in my family at the time. I get it. Like, I get my mom's anxiety and nervousness and my father's being a little bit more pragmatic and, okay, we have to create, decide on birthdays, we have to decide on names, we have to take the kids home, we got to go back, you know, like very, like, you know, structured. Did they get to decide your birthdays? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, we went through a lot of different things, but but part of, for us was also, I mean, this is a long time ago, part for, one of the challenges for us was also that we were so malnourished, so we didn't have, you know, the proper weight, you know, one way to tell someone's age is obviously weight and height, and we, we didn't have the same as an average two-and-a-half, three-year-old, so it was very hard to tell, because we didn't really have our birth certificates properly done, so it was just, uh, it's just a different way of doing it, so my... My father picked, actually, May 6th. Today is your sister's birthday. And then November 6th is your birthday. Check. Mm. Next. <laughs> you know. My sister got May 6th. Okay. I got November 6th. So I, you know, birthday has always been a funny thing and an interesting thing. So. I would say that he was nicer to your sister. Because in Sweden, well, globally, I, I guess, it's sort of a good thing to be born early in the year. We competed in school anyway. Yeah. I was I was like sure. in the middle. Yeah. No, I mean I think look at it more like you get you're gonna be handed cards in life, right? And you're gonna be handed some good and some bad, and you just like what do you do with them? You know, I've learned that that is something that comes back again and again and again and again, and 
even if you get a handle or good cards, it doesn't mean that you you win the poker game. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And in a way, it's a good thing to have uh, one's birthday in, in, I mean, it's the most boring time in Sweden, mm-hmm. I would say, in November. It's a rough month, but it's a rough month. But, you know, the weather is a little, you know, it's, it hasn't, winter hasn't really begun and it's raining, but it's cold and you just it's dark. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I just have, I loved growing up in Sweden. I, I loved it. And... Um, I think I was a pretty happy child. You know, a lot of stuff happened, but I think overall, when I look at it, it was a great experience, and I wouldn't want to change it for the world. I feel very blessed in terms of education level and 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 um, what my family provided. You know, in terms of being there for, for us and, and and guiding us through all the difficult challenges that we that any child has. You mm. know, my parents, both my mom and my dad and my sisters were there for that. So, Tough times and great times. Did you experience racism? Sure, but that's not unique to Sweden. That's, you know, that's one of the core things that we're dealing with globally all over the world from many levels. Absolutely not just. I think racism have evolved and it's just part of the fabric of of our our lives today. You know, it's 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 the conversation has definitely evolved and moved on, but it's in the core of so much. And I, I couldn't say that. Racism is unique in America, or it's unique. It, it doesn't exist in Africa, or it does exist only in Sweden. Absolutely not. It's all over the world, and it's it's pretty ugly when you go to the core of it. It's pretty ugly. How did you experience it? Well, I mean, it's it's you know, it's through a lot of different things. Through obviously skin color, and and but they happen mostly. You know, I don't believe that. Kids are racist, you know. I just don't believe, like, I don't believe an eight-year-old in the world is racist, you know. The parents might be, or their 19-year-old brother might be, but, you know, I just don't believe that an eight-year-old kid is racist. I just don't, because it's too early, too young, too too little, inform- you know. But we were we were taught, I mean, I think my mom was, my mom and dad had two, almost two different approaches on it, or my father was much more, I always felt that race, I was all, always in race training camp boot camp with my dad you know from a he knew and saw that this would happen that this would be a race would be a major part of our lives and he taught me just about it constantly talked to me about it when we drove to soccer practice or when we went rowing and fishing or something like that this is what we talked about and how to deal with it and how to deal with it as a young boy but also as a man where my mom was more like don't take shit for anyone. Yeah, this is, you know, she was more like, you know, you have to look in a certain way. You have to always be very proudful. You have to be, she was more like loving, hugging. You know, if somebody says anything, I'll go I'll go to school with you. And all you wanted was not to have your mom to go to school with you. That's like the last thing you wanted. So you, you just, you knew you had to deal with it in the house. If you're going to bring it home, there was almost two different buckets to deal with it. So most of the time, what you end up doing is you don't bring it home. You create a, your little crew, and you deal with it right then and there. You know, if there was, like, confrontation, maybe I stole the guy's bike. You know what I mean? There's always ways to get even, you know? Or his girlfriend. You know, there's always ways to get even. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like... Those things happen? Sure. I mean, yeah. Of course. It's... Uh, you know, it's a, every day is a, cele- it's a celebration and a learning lesson in everything, even today, like meeting you today. It's not like every, every day is a day of an opportunity to learn and move forward in this conversation of race, which is not, 
something that happened in the past, and today we're all clear away from it. You know, because it, it, it's, it's, I mean, look at it on the highest level, whatever it is, whether it's owning a basketball team, it comes up, right? What does it come down to? It comes down to race. Or you have people watching soccer in Spain that throw banana, bananas at the, some of the top soccer players in the world, right? Or you look at politics or ownership of of companies or something like that. So it's not like, oh, one side has it and the other side is completely home free. Not at all. We all, all seven and a half billion of us in the evolution of race and indifferences in spiritualities and sexualities for acceptance. Look at the young girls in, in, in Nigeria, what they have to suffer through. So it's a different type, right? But it's... It's tough. Do you know uh, who the Swedish uh, rap artist Timbuktu is? Yeah, of course. I know Jason very, very well. I grew up with him. Ah, you did? Sure. I know Jason is one of my dearest friends. Okay, cool. I interviewed him like uh, a few months ago, and he talked about the, the Black Spring in the 90s. He was born in a fairly small town called uh, Lund in Sweden, and he's sort of short as well. And he was up until he was like 15 or something. He felt that racism was all over, but somewhere in the 90s, maybe with MTV or something, actually rap music, when it hit Sweden in the early 90s, he calls it the the Black Spring, I think, when like suddenly he was like, and his friends was, were like the coolest kids in Lund. Can you relate to that? Well, Jason been a cool cat from a long time because Jason come from, he stands for the le- legacy of his father is one of the coolest people you will ever find, meet. His father is from right here in Harlem, actually. So Jason has a very good base of coolness, you know, and I think that maybe in the 90s other people got around to see his coolness. But he was, he has always been a cool kid, Jason, and now the world, especially Scandinavia, sees it. But I mean, I mean, all of this is exposure, right? MTV was started in the early '80s, as you know, and the person that broke the color code is Michael Jackson. So Michael was the one that exposed, in many different ways, blackness, right, to the world. It wasn't that it didn't happen; it wasn't there before, but to ex- truly exposure to a people's living room, right? So with that, Michael brought a lot of things that we knew were in black neighborhoods, like Moonwalk like the music and, 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 and the dance, and that was the first exposure, and then Prince, and, and then eventually came hip-hop with Run DMC, so, and eventually you know more and more and more. So it wasn't that that stuff wasn't around. I mean, way before that, you know, with Miles Davis and with all the jazz culture, it was just like that wasn't exposed to the majority of the world, which, which, which the TV really does, right? Radio and TV really has those things that you can be part of people's everyday, in a way. Yeah, Miles Davis might not have, have been, like, a major star among the 14 years old. But, you know, I don't think it's... I think it's... Impact does not, for me, really count in terms of album soul. I think if I think about impact, I can't imagine... Impact in terms of coolness, I can't imagine any person that had more impact on pop culture and coolness than Miles Davis in many, many ways, and made us think in different ways what sound could be like. But I do think that every era has its own. So now today, maybe that MTV might be YouTube, right? That has this incredible power of reaching. And black coolness has always been around. It was just underexposed in terms of 
exposure. It wasn't underexposed, and undervalued in terms of talent. You know, musicians always went and known about it. I mean, you ask Paul McCartney from the Beatles, who did he go to see? Who did he? Was his idol Jimi Hendrix? So this has always been there, but it was very much inside baseball, inside of sort of these different walls. When what MTV and 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 that era did was open it up. But of course, it was color coded. So without Thriller and without Michael, that's why we have that today. So and then so that paved the way for other things. You got into cooking really early on. Mm-hmm. When did you know that you were gonna be a chef? Well, I mean, I, I mean, chefing. First of all, sh- being a chef as a profession, from the level of what I thought about it, traveled through throughout the world, wasn't really an option. You know, this was done by a gift that sort of my grandmother created in our home that I took and nurtured and worked on. And then it was very local goals. I wanted to be able to work in the best restaurant in Gothenburg at a very early age and, and knocked on every door to do that. And eventually I got to do that. That was my six-month plan. But when you're around talented people, other things will happen, right? Once I got there, this guy told me, like, hey, you need to work abroad. I mean, what do you mean abroad? Like Norway or... And it's like, no, Europe, like Switzerland or France. So, you know, that was, I can't say that that was my grand plan when I was 11. This is something that I got to love, but also then opportunities and positive things were put in front of me. And that's why. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The relationship with mentor-mentee is so important, right? I got exposed at a very early age that this was attainable. You can live in Paris if you want to, but you got to work really hard. And, you know, for someone coming from Giberg, coming from Gothenburg, to live in France, it was like, wow, that's really exciting. Like, what's France like? So that, you know, now I want to work in a three-star Michelin restaurant. And this is before we had sort of, with the Euro and with the way, way, way before, where, you know, the countries in Europe was pretty locked up in terms of working permits and so on. So it was a lot of different hoops that I had to jump through to get it. And then on top of that, it was the color barrier, right? But none of that sort of, it was a lot of no's and a lot of a rejection. And I remember one time even I had the job because, you know, they gave me the job and, and uh, I was very excited in France, to go to France. And then when they saw me, you know, how can this kid be called Marcus Samuelson and, and be a black kid from Africa? And then they didn't give me the job. And that was, that was probably one of the toughest time, time to go back, you know, sit on that train, the 35-hour train ride and ride back home again. But none of that, it just made me clearer that clearly that was not my past meant to be. And it's not like I was 21 years old and had 
set was calmly about it. It was, it was extremely painful, but it was not in the cards. But eventually I got to France, and eventually I got to the three-star Michelin restaurant. And my father always said, why would you want to work in three-star? You don't even speak good French. Just work in a one-star Michelin. But it was the one few times where I actually stuck, you know, stuck to my guns and really I didn't want to trade down in that sense. You seem so focused. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think that focus is, is comes from a lot of different things. You know, first of all, I'm an immigrant to America, and America has been very positive and open to me. But I'm very grateful. But also the fact of you have to focus when you. I didn't come with a lot of money. I came with three hundred dollars to this country and a vision. So I understand that through work I can move forward. I also am very clear on that as a person of color, as a black man, opportunities are not given the same way as it is to other. So if you have or given an opportunity or work towards an opportunity, you better take care of it because I'm special. I'm not that special. That card can be gone at any given time. So I'm very aware of that. I'm very clear. It doesn't make me angry or bitter. It's just like I understand. I'm very, I've been in enough rooms to understand rules and regulations, and that clear, creates focus. Did you have any other dreams when you grew up that you would be like a professional soccer player? Sure. I mean, I always thought I, I would, up until 16, I always thought I would be a soccer player. I was actually very extremely surprised and shocked that I didn't become a professional soccer player. But, and that was that was heartbreaking itself. But but for a lot of different reasons, I wasn't good enough or, or, or strong enough or system of, of coaching, whatever, it wasn't, it's no one to blame. Like, end of the day, I took everything that soccer taught me, teamwork, hard work. Most of the time in soccer, people are very skilled, but not the most skilled is probably the one that makes the the professionals, you know. Someone that has the total package of discipline, hard work, and finding, understanding, positioning, because soccer is all about positioning, and being able to taking criticism and and taking that and learning from that and doing something with that. You see it times and times again, you know. I think there's a lot of where there's a superstar kid in the youth that that guy very, very rarely makes it to the professional. Then there's a guy or girl that might not be that skilled or talented but actually figures out their way and that's the one that goes to the pros. Very much like life. There's a combo. It's not Talent could get you in the conversation but hard work and humility sometimes. And sometimes mixed with luck and, 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 and hard work. And it's a combo. It's like a recipe. We'll get you out of there, you know. Whatever that out is, whatever you want. You were schooled in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of my training in Switzerland and in Interlaken, yeah. What was that like? It was great. I mean, it was, we were about 60 kids from all over the world. So I worked at this incredible hotel called Victoria Jungfrau. They're still there today. I mean, it's an iconic, gorgeous hotel. And uh, we were trained very, very hard to work extremely in an extremely rough and tough environment, but for extremely high clientele. And uh, there were rules and regulations, and you were drilled to do this. And if you didn't, you were sent home. And I thought it was a very fair trade. People spoke French or German or sometimes sometimes very rarely English or Italian. And so it was constantly different languages. But drive and work ethic 
was he, you know, I didn't, my first language is obviously not German, but I, I taught myself German and, and, and somewhat French. And I was by myself for the first time, and, and uh, it was hard, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I also created so many friends with my, you know, we had obviously bosses that were like five, six years older than us, and then they had bosses that were five, six years older than them. But it was this, you're in camp, and you drive towards excellence every day. But you, you're still scarred from that. Well, I think scarred in a good way. That sense of that, I I understand drive and 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 work ethic and work in a multicultural environment and high stakes. We cooked for everybody at that time in the eighties. It was like whether it was Margaret Thatcher, or Ronald Reagan, whatever was you know the big corporate company. You know, but it, we we learned a lot. Like we learned, we the, we had Japanese clients, so we learned about Asian food, for example, and Japanese food. We were always in environments where we were always pushed. You know, I started to work in a garden before I started in the kitchen. That was, I was, it was a very humbling experience, and totally on the outside. I had to deal with, you know, at the time, I was, it was a very confusing time because people spoke, spoke in so many different languages. So I, I developed sort of this, like, I don't want to say it was bulimia, but bulimia, but it was like more like, you know, I got so nervous every day, so I threw up. I threw up every day, you know, I threw up every day, once a day, and then I was fine. But you know, this it was clearly a very high stress, high, high level environment of energy and stress and stakes. But I remember the first day when I didn't throw up. That's like, wow, you know, so I, you know, the body is so strong, especially when you're that age. And it maybe took a year, but it's like, wow, I've sort of become, I understand this now. I know how to deal with this. And you're going to get screamed at and yelled at, and it's going to happen once a day, and regardless of the scenario. And as long as you just get through that five minutes, whatever that beat down might be, you'll be fine. Maybe times have changed, but I, I I would assume that it was like you would be abused in different ways. Mm-hmm. Does the the restaurant world does it still look like that? No, I mean, I mean this is twenty years ago, so I'm extremely happy that we've evolved as manager and management from that time. The two things you never saw in the kitchen were women or black people, right? When you go into a kitchen today, you see much more of that. We're not where we need to be. The other thing is that that management style of only fear-based management wouldn't work today. You know, I'm born in the 70s. If you would try that method with somebody born in the 80s, it would still function to some point. But if we take that management style to someone born in the 90s, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. They wouldn't bite. I mean, I'm, I work with, I'm lucky enough to work with people from millennials, but also people from different, you know, all different types of eras. And that's the one thing I know, that we have to manage and operate different. And that's a good thing. We're more, again, goes back to diversity. Because people are also exposed because, because of the internet, right? You can, you know, I remember in France, I had to walk behind my pastry chef. He would never give me the recipe, yet I could never make a mistake. But he would never give me the recipe. So how do you then learn in an environment where... You're not allowed to make steak, but you can't have a recipe. So I have to walk around him and look. How many cups of flour did you take out? And then sort of estimate in my own mind, what does that scoop look like? Today, you can go on YouTube in a second, or you can Google that recipe, 
and you can have it. Now, I'm not saying one is better than the other because you also learn enormous amounts of skills by doing that many, many times. Because, but clearly, access of information is key. But then you also have to sift through all the noise and do, right? So I, I became a master ta- of task and doing things and failing, but doing it and knowing. If you only see something on YouTube and maybe you so only do it once, who is the one that's learned the most? You know, who to, you know, I still, there is, there, I think there's something on both sides. I'm not saying that I want to go back to this sort of late 80s abusive kitchen, not at all. But by repetition and doing something, it was very, very, it taught me a lot. And, and being challenged taught me a lot. When was the last time that you like skällde ut någon? What's that in English? Last time I screamed at somebody? Yeah. I don't even I don't I mean I challenge people every day, but I don't think my tone of voice I mean I explain, I said clear path and goals for my individuals that I work with. I'm not sure if I raising my voice is the way to do that, but I, I I'm clear on this is not happening. You are right now not delivering in the way that we agreed on, that we're committed to each other. That happens every day, every day. This is what we agreed on. This is not happening. We can't have very little acceptance for that. But that doesn't mean that you have to, because you scream doesn't mean you're more passionate or more in control of the situation, probably less control of the situation. So I don't think the level of tone of voice for me is, is whether you Gonna get the, it's all about inspiring people to get the most out of people to enjoy the ride and to have them be partners and enjoy their task. I don't know any other business than the restaurant industry that is so much a people business from the back of the house to management to customers to constant. So you're going dealing with people you constantly going to be. It's very very rewarding because you're going to see people exceed their, your expectation and their own expectation. And it's also very, very disappointing because you're going to see the opposite. So it's very much about getting people to perform at a higher level than they thought that it would be capable of. And that's hard on every day. It's hard. Mm. It's very difficult. But it's also, that's the challenge. There lies the challenge. Because it's not so much, people don't come to Rooster, Red Rooster to eat. People come to create memories, part of something. They're hungry. There's so many places they can go to. It's not a hunger-based decision. It's, I'm here. I, I want to see Harlem. I want to celebrate. It's an occasion that I want to remember. It's, I'm part of something. It's in my neighborhood. I've come far. I come from Japan. I come from Stockholm. I come from New Jersey. That's not a hunger decision. You actually, like, built this place from scratch? Yeah. Or, yeah. So everything in here, like, you've chosen it or...? Yeah, I mean, it's handmade, handmade based, and I thought the whole idea was that let's create something that is inspired from the past when Harlem had Supper Club. This is where they came from. So this was an important part. Just in the beginning, we couldn't afford it. We, I mean, we, had, we were lucky enough to have the president of the United States eat here when we didn't even have colors on our walls, you know what I mean? So this is, when I come into this place every day, I also see the evolution that we, we had a disco ball here. That was the only thing we had. And uh, couldn't even afford to have really even paint the walls because we ran out of money. But uh, so I still thought that people will see our intention and our, our ambition and our try and our dig- the sense of dignity that we try to provide. So upstairs, 
We put everything we had into the upstairs part of the restaurant. And then I said, give me a year or a year and a half and we will build it downstairs. And that's what happened. But it's all handmade. This is not shipped to us. This is carved out. Oh, cool. Everything is based out of a radio from the 40s. You see the backdrop in there. It's actually a radio. And then the, the seats are out of old American iconic cars, you know. So the car seats and then all the art essentially from Harlem residents. So there's always a dialogue about art, musicians, storytellers, authors. So that's why we have our salons down here. So this is map and compass. All of this was in Harlem at some point, and now we're bringing it back. And Someone told me that you like you felt that you had to live here mm-hmm. to understand it mm-hmm. before you started. <clears throat> I mean, the I, business. W- I needed the passport. I felt needed. I knew that if I'm going to do this restaurant, and I'm going to do a big drum roll on it and create a lot of energy that would have a local recognition and a New York and then a nationwide and then a global recognition, then I needed to know the neighborhood that I operated in fully. So I'm, I moved here and for the first five years, I felt I didn't know enough about the neighborhood. So I didn't open a restaurant. I learned. I under- tried to understand why I wasn't enough farmer's market here, why wasn't there enough fresh foods and all of these different things. Like, But there were also some jewels, some things that were really, really good. I mean, so it was, again, I said, it had really good bones. And those bones were done way before me. But I started to know my neighborhood and, and go to block parties and understand the beat. And one, five years into it, I felt like, okay, we've done the study. It takes like, what, five years to get a PhD? And I felt like I need to have a PhD in Harlem. Mm. in order to project Harlem out to the world. Did you still work in, in Aquavit at that time? Or? Yeah, I mean, I worked, uh, I definitely worked at Aquavit, and, and uh, Aquavit was a, is and always been a very important part of my becoming a chef. You know, it was part of my aspirations as a young cook that this was this place in New York that, if you worked really hard as a Swedish kid, you can work there. Like Swedish food, and in, in, uh, is there Swedish food out outside Sweden? You know, just asking that question was very strange for me. And Aquavit set that aspirations that hey, of course. And it was my entry point to New York City, and then it became the place where I became closely, closely identified with. And I was twenty twenty three years old when I had the chance to become a chef and there and it was very early and so today I'm in my 40s and so so it's it's been a 15 years journey that I knew at some point that I have to get off this train I had to as I've understood it you were the youngest cook to get a three-star review mm-hmm. in New York Times what does that mean for a career I mean, New York Times is the leading paper in the world, so or one of the leading papers in the world, if not the leading paper in the world. So obviously it sends, first of all, it sends a, a message. But like, like anything, it, it starts locally. And before it starts locally, you got to have to do the legwork, and we did the legwork. We were working very, very hard on changing the food. And, and uh, you know, they, don't, they came in many times, and I didn't know it. So they ate the food, and they also, I think, they believed in the ambition and the project. And they were kind enough to support the vision. And uh, it went from being busy, busy sometimes to all the time. But like, any, like anything, like I don't look at the world, my work as a backward machinery. You know, my feet are looking forward. 
And that gave me a welcoming passport to New York City. But then, like, it's really, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And at 23, 24, it could be too young really to understand it. So I just focused on the things that I knew, food, and just try to evolve and be better and better and evolve the restaurant product. And um, for a very, very long time, we looked in. We had different tasting menus every day. We had vegetarian tasting menus, asking questions about environment and Swedish food and how far could we push it. And Because food travels only in a couple of different ways, right? It travels through massive population like China and India or massive tourism like France and uh, Italy. And Sweden has neither. So how do you then project Swedish food to a lot of people that most of them actually never been to Sweden. So it was important to find common ground, but also then stay true to what I felt was not necessarily only Swedish ingredients, but Swedish way of, of cooking. And I sort of started to develop that, thinking about it from a seafood point of view, game cooking, like venison and elk, but also pickling preserving techniques. But then I started to think about also, what does that look like? Well, aesthetic is very important in Sweden and Scandinavia minimalistic design, uh, starts, what, what, what does that smell like, sound like, what does nature fit in? So asking myself larger questions, and within that, creating a framework of what I felt my Swedish food was about, beyond meatballs. Yeah. It seems like your, your cooking is so, it really comes from your heart, in, mm-hmm. a, in a way. Mm-hmm. You need a basement, and that basement for me was French cooking. But after that, you still need some other things, and that was my love for my family. So I look inwards, and the family, from a child to a teenager to an adult, changes. But it's, it just grows, right? So Sweden will always be part of that. So will my experience of traveling all over the world for food, and so will where we are right now. So I look inwards and outwards as inspiration. So that's why meatballs make sense in a place like Harlem, but so does Berbere, the spice blend from Ethiopia, because I now feel like I know enough about that side. But so does still these French techniques, because that's where I trained. But so does also maybe the cured salmon does not have to be the same way cured as our grandparents did, because they did it out of necessity. We do it based out of flavor enhancers. So why don't we cure it so it has more sashimi taste the way it'd be done in Japan? So the techniques and the framework is there. The textures and the tones are a little bit different. So I compare it to jazz, you know, where you have a bass, but then it's also like just like jazz. It's based on a lot of improv. But you don't get to improv on every dish, sort of. No, but I mean, there's also where we have, I mean, all the cooks that works with us, whether it's in Sweden, in Stockholm, or in Gothenburg, or, or here, they have, we share a common language, which is modern cooking. So the, the, the basement work is there. And then the vision, again, if you look at it from a jazz, it allows the cooks to improv, the chef to do some improv, because you've got to be locally relevant. So it, it's, the passion of food has to be there. The cooking basic skills have to be there. And what conversation do you want to have with an audience? This is an American brasserie that is a neighborhood restaurant for a big part of this community, which is a destination restaurant for another community, visitors, right? So that's the, I want to see this restaurant through American Brasserie, and we're celebrating every day through fun dining, right? Down here is more of a supper club. So 
the right service, the right food, it's based on what conversation do you want to have. If you go to a concert and you're going to listen to, let's just say, Timbuktu, well, that's the conversation that you're in the mood for. But let's say you go to the opera house, equally high level, but that's the conversation. Maybe you dress a little bit different, and maybe you even go and have champagne afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Like it just sets the tone for how you, as a guest, set up your night. And neither one, one is not better than the other. They're both needed in the celebration of your everyday. I was so impressed with your thoughts behind the the President Obama first state dinner mm -hmm. with the bread breaking and, mm -hmm. and so on. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I'm not sure that our Swedish listeners are fully up to speed. Well, I mean, doing the being asked to do a state dinner is obviously something that I was very, very highly appreciative of and I thought would be an incredible challenge. But I needed to... Uh, you know, I felt like needed also presented, so it had added, well, added some value. And I felt like if you have a big occasion, I always try to make it smaller. You're cooking for people, regardless if they're in suits and tuxedos. It's people. People actually don't know each other. So, what would be one of the best way? What would you want in a party to be like? Well, starting with breaking bread is kind of nice because then you're like, oh, hi. If you take the titles away, ambassador, so and so and so and so, it's still people. So creating a bread basket with Indian chapati and American cornbread set the tone for both an Indian and American dinner, which it was. It was for Prime Minister Singh. And as I researched more about Prime Minister Singh, it was vegetarian. So I felt it was occasion to really focus on vegetarian food. Because if you have a guest of honor, you're not serving steak to the person that is vegetarian. So it was looking at how was the state dinner set up, but also... Was it something we could add? I felt from going back to Jackie Kennedy's time, most state dinners were French food. And I'm like, well, even if there wasn't a French minister there, I felt like, well, this is an opportunity to serve American food and Indian food. And also the fact that Michelle Obama had, had started her initiative with the garden. So we took a lot of ingredients from the garden. So there was, again, it's like how you enter a space and how you enter a dialogue and what conversation do you want to come out of that. That I think about that in everything that I do. What conversation do you want to have before, during, and a after that? So um, creating a menu that was mainly vegetarian-based with humble ingredients that winked and, and pointed at Indian food, but also American food, was very appropriate for the occasion. And um, I, I hope my ambition and goal was obviously to have a that they enjoyed it and they did because um, yeah I just they said that to me several times <laughs> yeah fantastic mm -hmm. do you get to vote in both in Sweden and here yes actually um, yeah in America absolutely and in, in Sweden as well sometimes I feel I don't know enough about Swedish politics I, I mean there's certain topics that I know more about and, and I engage more in but I, I don't I don't know enough about Swedish politics. I feel like the, sort of the politics I can be part of is really about hiring people and engaging people through labor, through work. And that doesn't really necessarily have a party behind it. You know, I just feel like engagement in cooking is on both sides of the sides of the continents are my engagement, my contribution, so to speak. Speaking of which, I mean, you've been living here for like 15 years, but you still do stuff back in Sweden? I feel like I've been blessed by having 
I think it's an amazing... I've been blessed to be able to have a conversation and a dialogue in two parts of the world that I... Several parts of the world, but, but particularly Scandinavia and America. There are two places I care about a lot, that I've been maybe a hundred cooks that's come from Sweden to work here in the States, and they go back. And uh, it's this dialogue of inspiring young hospitality students to say, hey, you can actually work in America. And for American kids to say, hey, you can actually be part of working in Sweden. That is a legacy that I'm extremely proud of. And uh, I know also that's been very helpful for a lot of cooks and waiters and hospitality students because when I go back to Sweden and I know a lot of my friends and ex-students, they own their own places or they are in managerial positions within the industry and we were part of that, you know, and that's, that's very rewarding. We talked a, a little bit about the difference between managing in Sweden and here in the U.S., but is there a, a difference between your personality in the U.S. versus Sweden? I mean, first of all, my language is food. My main conversation is food. So uh, ingredients-wise, yes, because you are you work locally with the ingredients. So yeah, I'll probably say that in many ways because you, you adapt based on what's your top ingredients. But maybe I wouldn't say as an approach, but as you, you know, for example, if you have cod and mackerel in front of you, that's what, so the outcome of what you'll cook will be completely different than if you have yard bird and chicken, you know, and that sets the tempo also very often of. But I think the framework is different. I see dining through a celebration, and and people work very hard today, so for people to get together, it's very hard, so they want to trash you. I want people to forget all about all of that stuff. When they enter our place, it's going to be, finally, yes. And here we go with conversation. So I don't know if that I changes. I just feel like it's a little bit ingredient-based for me, and food is my language. In what ways would you say that you still are Swedish or Ethiopian or American? Well, first of all, I think your DNA, we're, we're, we're so fortunate that you can carry an identity, and it doesn't mean the same. It, it just has a very personal meaning, right? I can tell you in my... My love for positive and negative space, minimalistic design, is not coming from the U.S. That clearly comes from where I was raised. My love for African beats, it's in my blood, it's in my vein. When you see me crossing the street, you're seeing an African man. So it's very clear of my identity. And when you see me walking in Harlem, you see a man walking in home, right, at ease. So I never really looked at from an outsider to say, oh, you 10% this or 20% this. It's like I know where clearly where I was born, I know where I was raised, and I know where I live. But I'm thinking maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a Swedish way of like thinking about things. That sure, and that's what I said in terms of my love for positive and negative space and minimalistic designing. That's a Swedish way yeah. because my love for nature. I need Sorry. nature. I'm very, although I live in a very urban city, I need to run and be outdoor. So th- I think that's something that, just this love for, for nature is something that I was raised with, you know, and I think because of public land, almost all land, is, majority of the land in Sweden is public land, we're very fortunate to be able to go out to nature and our relationship with nature is very unique. Maybe Swedes in Sweden don't think about it, but once you get out of Sweden, you start 
realizing and appreciating these things that Sweden actually has that are unique and incredible. Where do you find nature to run in then? I go, there's a park outside where I live and there's Central Park and then very often when I'm off I try to leave the city sometimes and just go to other places where there's where they're close to nature, whether it's the ocean or whether it's the woods, just because I need to think. Would you like to recommend something? In difficult times, just cook your way out of it. It's one of the most calming and best way of sharing uh, an emotion. You can be angry and cook beautifully. You can be really happy and express that. It's one of the best ways of just just even going to the market and just buying the ingredients, thinking about who you're going to cook for, what mood you're in. You can express yourself. I saw a TV show about one of Sweden's top runners in marathons, and she said that she can never think about anything else but running while running. Are you the same way with cooking? I actually think a lot about food when I'm running. And you think about running when cooking? No, but I think that running is what, I mean, she's a professional, which I'm not in terms of uh, running. So it's one of these things where I start thinking about things, about textures and how and why. And I think about my day and the people that I'm going to, I think it's a, it's a think about my family, think about, okay, did I? Do I do the right thing about this, or do I have to improve the hair? And you know, so I think it's a it's a one of the few times in the, on the whole day that I'm by myself. So I value that time very much. You have children, right? Yeah, I have a daughter. Does she speak uh, Swedish? No, she speaks a lot of language, but not Swedish. Okay. Yeah. Would you like her to learn that at some time? Or? Sure. I mean, that's the most important is to for her to be happy and, and, and I think language is, is something that you know I never had an argument with somebody that I didn't understand the language with the arguments are very often with people you speak the same language with so sometimes I think language there's so many different ways to. she's a great musician she can cook she can do a lot of things so there's other ways for her to communicate you know maybe you should get to plug your book by the way yeah the book is called We Chef and yeah we've been very Fortunate with a book, you know, here in America, it was eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's in 10, 15 countries and all over the world, so I'm very fortunate. Who would you like me to interview here in Vervet, on Vervet International? If you get Prince to talk, that would be pretty good. Thank you so much for your time, Marcus. Thank you very much. Marcus Samuelson, such a humble, nice Really down-to-earth guy, salt of the earth, I would say. And uh, he is uh, on television here right now. It's a program called The Taste, and he is one of the judges together with Nigella Lawson and Anthony Bourdain, among another guy. And, uh, well, I really, really enjoyed meeting Marcus, and I look forward to reading his book, It's called Yes Chef here in uh, the US and it's called We Chef back home in Sweden. My producer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. My name is Christina Jörling Biro and my editor is Lovisa Olsson. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye. Hej då.